Hi, this is Better Red Than Dead, a literature podcast from a left perspective. I'm Megan. I'm Tristan. I'm Katie. And today we are going to be talking about part two of Herman Melville's Pierre, 1852, which is about a guy whose polycule-related misadventures end in murder, <laughs> suicide, and <laughs> murder. And yes, the polycule includes his sister, cousin, mother, and ex-fiance. So this book went wrong. But we don't know how. We'll um, figure it out, I hope. Actually, multiple I, cousins, if we want to include Glenn in there, although he's he's a little bit before the polycule happened. So. He's well, handsome. that was the cousin I was thinking of. Actually. Lucy's the cousin. They're both cousins. They're, yeah, right. they're kids. Yeah, we have to, when Lucy comes back in, we have to say that she is a cousin because if she has no familial relationship, then that would make the banging too weird, right? You can't, ma- you can't, <laughs> no, can't no. marry her if she's not your cousin. <laughs> But why do we want to read it? Why do we want to finish it, Katie? What are we going to not finish Pierre? <laughs> we started Pierre. We're not going to finish it? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> but I guess I guess some people must not finish Pierre. And so it's an option. But I have to just assume those people are cowards yeah. with no moral courage or clarity. And we, on the other hand, stuck around. We're brave. How could you not stick around for the second half of Trust Fund Guy decides to just <laughs> figure it out? and uh boy does it go well Um, yeah it's a huge bummer but it's also very hilarious and we won't get to all all these things but just to kind of set it up pierre has a fight with his mom that is so intense her buttons pop and steam comes out of her ears no not really but her buttons do pop Mm -hmm. she's so mad she disrobes herself She's her clothes are she's all like always in a state of déshabille though this lady. <laughs> I, I mean yeah. it's, it's milf porn. We've established yeah. this last episode. Yes. <laughs> and the pizza man is ringing the doorbell. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the pizza man is her son. So anyway. <laughs> and his first cousin. <laughs> and yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, and look, is that his sister? But anyway, just another thing to kind of set it up. I just want to get to the the meat of Pierre. But in keeping with the ridiculous goofball theme, so in this part, as we'll talk about, Pierre rolls up to the big city with a lady on each arm. Real cool. That's how you want to roll up to the big city. And Pierre has to leave them for a second and go do ill-advised crap. And when he comes back, they're very they're like very shocked. And it's been it's been a rough time out there. They've seen possibly a, a a lady who looked at them uh with a knowing gaze as if she has um possibly been involved with a man in the biblical sense and <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's so but it's it's Melville's just great because he narrates it as so incredibly traumatizing that you feel like they've just looked at Tub Girl, Lemon Party, <laughs> Goatsy, and then did something equally awful like read the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> oh, God. Hey. If those references are not legible to you, dear listeners, Don't do not Google them. Google them. Don't, Please, no. no. Do not. I'm really serious. Don't look them up. I made a huge mistake when they had to explain Lemon Party to me like a year ago, and I don't. Oh. Yeah. I don't I I was better off not knowing. Yeah. Google is not your friend in these instances. No. Keep your hand off the image search button. Yeah. Um but in conclusion, 
It's also cool that Pierre winds up moving into like an art dorm at college. So I went to Rutgers and at Rutgers, it was the one where everyone was fire spinning and the dress code required you to be in body paint at all times. And to me, that's real art. That's real art. And Pierre is also real art. But I, I, I would just also like it noted that I went to a women's college in the Bay Area, and they didn't do fire spinning and body paint. Well, uh, <laughs> welcome to the finest university on the East Coast. And I say that without any irony. That's right. So I really think that now having read this, it is truly the second half of a novel that we all deserve in our day and age and in the day and age in which it was written 150 years ago. So our favorite fail lord decides that in order to be the best at everything, he must have two wives and also be a writer. And this sounds like an excellent plan to me. Yeah. Yeah. Not that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, if you're doubted out being a writer for sure, it's the best yeah. idea. Yeah. yeah. And, and also, and, and to, but also the two wives, make sure you're related to both wives too, right? Well, yeah. yes. Yes. Important. It's uncouth I, not to be. I mean, if I were disinherited and in the 19th century, I personally would be sure to bring my two wives to the big city and set to work <laughs> in my closet with the old quill pen, scratching away at some book about, um, like, Virgil or <laughs> chronometrics. Chronometric. I lost the plot. I lost it. That's okay. There wasn't one to find, but it's gone. And we talked about it last week, but there's something about this half that reminds me even more of Hawthorne than the first half. And it's like if Melville copied Hawthorne's homework, but it was upside down, and also Melville had taken a bunch of ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that's not a bad description of Herman Melville. Period. I think, but particularly yeah. here, <laughs> there are also the many noteworthy chapters here that are extended meditations on like nature and philosophy and like Greek myth, and I think those work slightly better in Moby Dick, but that's okay. Like I knew that this book was. Moby Dick, but psycho ear, and that's I I knew where I was. That's it's fine. It's Moby Dickless. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, is it though? I mean, I mean, Moby Dick is insane in a deeply entertaining way, um, mm -hmm. and just like just throughout, quite awesome. This is, uh, I mean, I do I think this is a great novel. I think this is uh, Megan. You said last week it really one that really stayed with you. Say, I mean, definitely, but it is not uh, fun to read in the way that I would say Holy Moby shit. Dick is uh, is just delightful. I think like we gotta just once again thank the God that is Hawthorne for being like. Can I fix some shit for you, please? Yeah, no, for sure. And and I feel like whereas Moby Dick, he, Hawthorne was like, yes, I can I can get him to rein the whale references in slightly that we can make this work. <laughs> My theory here is he dropped this on Hawthorne and he's like, I know. Like, I, I there don't know an, what to tell you. <laughs> there is not <laughs> enough hours in the day or in my life for me to make this <laughs> less insane. Sir, he hasn't even written Finnegan's Wake yet, but this yeah. is crazier. You tell at James Joyce when you see him next week at the bar yeah, that his sure. book is less crazy. For sure. <laughs> he will not believe you, but it'll be um, true. 
Oh man. Yeah. Uh, well this novel sure doesn't get any more regular, right? Uh, but, uh, I, I just think it gets more, less <laughs> regular. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes, but much weirder. Uh, I will say that the Chronometricals and Horologicals pamphlet was written specifically for me uh, about the marine <laughs> timekeeping yeah. pieces, which we'll get to that. I mean, we will definitely get to that. Today. Did you also accidentally hide it in the lining of your coat for your entire adult <laughs> yes, life? That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, he loses the pamphlet in question, Pierre, um, in his clothes in a way that I find just like kind of flabbergasting. But anyway. <laughs> So funny. If the pamphlet is made for you, then 19th century clothing construction, I have a pin <laughs> yens and okay. knowledge, but I'm not sure anyone wants to hear it. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we've got a podcast episode just on these two topics if we wanted. But but yeah, like as you were saying, Megan, uh, wait, this is about authorship now? Pierre's a writer? What the fuck? Um, a really bad one. And really Melville- bad. Melville dunks on that in in some amazing ways. But I just think that's a fascinating direction for the incest epic that he's writing to take. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, the the first half, I I think overall, you know, we got into this a bit last week. It is about power, paternity, the family, the nation. So it's like, yeah, the, the writing thing, what the hell? Having just written Moby Dick, which is the the great American novel, right? The great 19th century American novel, at least, TM, uh, which, which is something Melville clearly gave many shits about. He seems to be uh, using the incest epic to put a lot of pressure on even the possibility of such a thing, which is cool and also deranged. Uh, just a weird <laughs> way of getting there. Right? That, that's <laughs> yeah. our boy. Love the novel. Yes. <laughs> And your sister. Yeah. (laughs) um, I did really enjoy what an absolute shithead Pierre's cousin Glenn that we meet is. Um, The man's first name is Glenn Denning, because if you can't have the family name as a family name, you must take it as your given name because aristocrats are stupid. (laughs) It makes perfect sense. They also do that on The Real Housewives. Yeah, well, and uh, Fitzwilliam, Fitzwilliam Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, right? That's oh, right. <laughs> but, uh, Those references are actually going to make perfect sense together. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think so. We continue the many dunks on the United States and its faux aristocracy in the second half, which is great. And then there's the last 50 pages where Lucy reappears and the incest plot becomes a poly plot, except it's also still incest because right at Lucy and Pierre, we learn are related, but not so closely. It's weird, or maybe it's more weird than anyway. Uh, I think Lucy might have returned. So Melville can have her write a letter in which she says, I'm coming five times in one sentence. Um, <laughs> this is, after all, the guy who would later end Billy Budd with the sun and the ocean ejaculating. If yeah. you don't believe that that's what happens, look it up. I am dead yeah. serious. We talked and about this. <laughs> not just the sun and the ocean, I might add. No, no. Oh, no. It's all, all. Of, it's all of all of things. It's a crowd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, yes. it's everything but Billy Budd, as I remember. But yeah. he sort of does, too, if you think about it. <laughs> Um, supplemented. <laughs> just what a crazy beautiful brilliant bastard and yeah i'm stoked to finish this book with you guys so today we're talking about okay everything in this list has question marks religion question mark character <laughs> or plot question mark although you could also phrase that as what are ladies for <laughs> and this, this book's question about like writing and publishing as themes worth taking up So, Katie, tell us what happens in the second half. Oh, boy, I can't wait. 
So the second half starts off with this chapter crossing the Rubicon. And after we cross the Rubicon, we start having an extremely cool time. Pierre goes to his blonde fiance, Lucy Tartan, and says, I am sorry, my beautiful rural bumpkin. I'm married to definitely not my sister. And she faints. Her maid faints. She's sad to death. It's much worse than having diarrhea to death. And then Pierre, having wrought this destruction, gets home and texts his mom, you up, mom? And she is up. And she is furious. She's up. (laughs) And Pierre goes through the whole I'm married routine again. And then (laughs) as as Tristan uh, mentioned in the group group chat, um, then Pierre makes a dramatic exit by thumping down the steps, like bouncing down each one with his head or ass in the manner of Winnie the Pooh. I see. I actually thought this was like the suddenly a Jerry Lewis bit where he's like, I'm yeah. married to my sister. <laughs> Ouch, owie dog. It's like, nice lady. You know? <laughs> and the French laughed and laughed. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, it's so Melville though, right? Yeah. Just like, yeah. what a tragic plot. Bonkety bonk, bonk, yeah. bonk. No. <laughs> yep, Buster Keaton. It is pure slapstick in the seed that has been building to like pure pathos. It is, <laughs> yes, it is, it yes. is classic Melville for sure. It's like you try to walk your slinky down the stairs and then you just toss it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's like I tried to walk my toddler down the stairs. <laughs> oh. That bounces more than Pierre, though. Um, he does not bounce. He. He well, he sort of bounces. He bounces to the the Marriott. No, no, it's the Black Swan Hotel. Oh, what a name! So his mom is being a bitch about sending his stuff, and he also sends this absurd note to Dates, the butler. It's like we're friends, right? I folded this note a lot. We're friends. You don't work for me anymore, but you're we're pals. Can I have my trunk and all my crap, please? So the mom winds up sending it in this sort of fit of rage. And then in a hilarious scene, Pierre opens the trunk and it's the painting of his dad. Ah, and it's looking at him. <laughs> and so, so, of course, he throws the portrait into the fire and then sort of is like, ah, I don't know about that. So he sticks his hand in and absolutely charbroils it. <laughs> yep. Full Cajun style. He would Blackened. not have... You blackened, blackened Pierre hand, he would not have passed the test of the Gomjabar. Hey, what other podcast are you going to get a Dune reference while talking about one of Melville's more obscure novels? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like surprised that somebody could be like less appealing a character than Paul Atreides. (laughs) No, welcome to Pierre. Yeah. So after Pierre enjoys the continental breakfast at the Black Swan, he bobs over to Isabel and Deli. She Deli's the one who had the baby out of wedlock, and the baby died, and she was disowned, and Isabel buried it, and now they're best friends. And Isabel is his sister, who is his wife, and she has big hair and smoldering eyes. She does smolder, and she plays the guitar like no one's business. Except that later, I don't even know if this is in your summary, where she's like, maybe I could teach kids guitar, and Pierre's like, I mean, you're good at guitar, but you're not like... <laughs> Good, good. <laughs> He's like, it's for you, it's more of a solitary thing, I think. <laughs> like, I think it's more of just like a you hobby, not like a we thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a there's a fair amount of, of birdie, like everyone birding each other in the second half, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah. 
so they all meet up and they take this carriage into the city and Pierre is fully PMSing about the nature of sin. And in the carriage, he also stumbles upon this pamphlet that somebody was probably blowing their nose or wiping their 19th century ass into. But the pamphlet will be important later. It's about chronometricals and horologicals. And it's by <laughs> this evil guy, Flint Lemon. Also, hilariously, someone has ripped out the end of it. So when he like never finds out why Bruce Willis sees dead people. He never finds out who Rosebud is. It's all done. <laughs> Am I being a real C word if I point out that it is not, in fact, Bruce Willis who is seeing the dead people in that movie? He sees them. <laughs> He sees he, them. He does is, he see them or does he not see them? He is them. Yeah, and he sees them too. <laughs> oh, yeah. He sees himself. I think. I think I've told you guys about my uh, my uh, the sixth sense spoiler when it came out that ninety died in the theater and there was some dude uh, talking on his cell phone very loudly behind us. It's like, oh yeah, I'm at that Bruce Willis movie. See, the thing is, he's dead, and he doesn't so like the very beginning of the movie. But uh, I just also, if I can say about the. Uh, the 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 pan the, can I talk can I say something about the chronometricals can I oh okay. you can say <laughs> anything yeah. anything about the chronometricals so, as I said this was written for me I had yeah it is a it's it's a it's a and actually I think that this gets we talked a little bit about how critics were mad that this book was about casuistry which is like kind of read as like moral kind of equivalence like or like kind of like moral relativism right rather than a, 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 an arch moral code and yeah like Plinleman is comparing morality to the horolog, the which is like your standard clock, and the chronometer, which is extremely Melville because <laughs> the chron the marine chronometer is actually like one of the great inventions of the 18th century. So, like to be able to fix your longitude. So, okay, latitude, right? How far north or south you are, right? All you've got to do is take a look at the angle of the sun uh, at you know at, at a certain time of day, and you'll know where you are. Longitude. Yeah, that's only, all I do when I want to know what time it is. <laughs> the only way to know how east or west you are is if you have a standardized point in time, right? So, like, you know what the time of day is at the prime meridian, then you can know, like, okay, but the sun is at X angle. If you don't have that, um, then there's no, the, they basically had to guess. They spent for the first few hundred <laughs> of years of sailing, they just guessed, like, how far they had gone, which was wildly inaccurate. And the reason, um, that it took so long to figure that out was because like the motion of a ship throws the pendulum of the clock way off. So what you needed was a very specialized device that uh, kept uniform time wherever you were on the, on the planet. But anyway, like, so the, the idea is that, 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 that is a, that is the, the, the marine chronometer, like this, this moral code that never changes. But the point of the pamphlet mm -hmm. is like, well, that's stupid. That's what God does, but we're men see. And like, as humans, like we have to, we can't do that, um, which is wild. But I also like think that the, the, the novels endorsing casuistry is wrong in that, like, I don't think you're supposed to agree with what the pamphlet is saying there no. or am I wrong? You're, you are not, you, that's the point is that it's bad. Yes. Yeah. So I don't, I don't get that knock for a mid 19th century Chud reviewers about I that. I think they were, they were doing, they were doing that thing where they like how people talk about Mad Men that like the things that it represents are the things that it endorses. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like, oh, this is, yeah. this is a celebration of capitalism. It's like, did you watch this series? Yeah. Were we, you know? were we in, but what? But. Anyway, sorry. I just I I don't often get to talk about marine chronometers and how you determine longitudes. So <laughs> thank you for it. It is weird that doesn't come up more though. 
Yeah. Like in general. Yeah. yeah. Like in life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you just chill with your is buds, it, you know. Is it weird? <laughs> My memory of <laughs> Um uh so yeah, so this pam yeah, so the pamphlet is is I'll I'll say it differently and worse. But the pamphlet's <laughs> about time and how it's a different time everywhere on Earth. So it's crazy to say it's noon everywhere. It might be dark on the other side of the world. Ah. And for that reason In Australia, March is fall times yes. and the toilet circles the other way it does yep. watch the simpsons uh, episode do <laughs> yep. it don't stop but for that for that reason for those all those reasons including the toilet australia one it might be okay to do murder <laughs> or marry your sister because context matters y'all yep <laughs> okay. that's why it's on the podcast that's why it's on the podcast so here things start to become absolutely harrowing and depressing, but there is a funny part as they're going into the city. Delhi is like, what the fuck? When the carriage starts going like bump, bump, bump over pavement. It's just like a funny little country mouse, city mouse moment <laughs> of levity. Cobblestone scare me. <laughs> yep. So Pierre is going to the city to stay with his cousin, Glenn, Glenn Stanley. Who, who said Pierre could stay with his wife. And he thought that that would be Lucy. But Pierre thinks, I, I wrote him a letter. And I, anyway, I've got him on a wife technicality. This is wife. <laughs> yeah. You said wife could stay. And I brought wife. And, <laughs> and, and he thinks that he has a plus one for Delhi for some reason. <laughs> wife is always a plus one situation with Pierre. <laughs> yeah. Like wife plus other wife. Yeah, the plus plus one gets a plus one. And there's a whole chapter about Pierre and Glenn and how they're kind of kissing cousins and how Glenn is hot and they're wrestling best friends who are in love, but not like you're in love with a lady, but kind of. So they're having this like very charged homoerotic relationship. And Pierre is obsessed with several things of the letters he's getting from Glenn, like his salutation and sign off. So one thing he's really pissed about is that he wrote like, Dear Pierre, and then later altered it to be added like carrot my dearest Pierre. <laughs> and that is the mark of a fake friend, jealous bitch, hater, and <laughs> double birds to the hot cousin. But but that's not rational, you see, but it's correct. Because when they get into the city, it is nighttime, which is Isabel's favorite time, as we'll find out on several occasions and their uber driver's like i have to go to bed do you not know what the house number is what the hell dude? <laughs> and pierre does the thing that that i do <laughs> which is i know it by sight i know it by sight so then a cop comes Driving in. with you is always a bit of a a madcap adventure <laughs> yeah you know anyone who's ever been in the car with me will <laughs> test that <laughs> i mean there's a uh driving around new jersey is not the easiest thing so you tend to you tend to fix uh location more <laughs> by, uh, <laughs> but i can't blood. imagine tristan that you didn't learn to drive at the age of 13 on a tractor <laughs> <laughs> i mean i i yeah i was i was driving not on public uh or roads uh before i was in cars so. <laughs> just chawing on some hay uh. um <laughs> But uh, so Pierre, as he's navigating, <laughs> they're happened upon by a cop because he's starting to fight the carriage driver. 
And Pierre's like, Mr. Police, I couldn't possibly have given you all the clues because I don't know them myself. But would you take my wife, sister, cousin, and this other lady uh, while I go look for something? So obviously the, the, the cop sucks. What'd you think was going to happen? It's the cops. So Pierre noodles off into the night to Cousin Glenn's. And he gets the door and... He can Pierre can like see him the home alone party, you know, like the figures in the window and, <laughs> and all that shit. And um and, but his the doorman is like, uh, Glenn is uh sleeping. Uh he's a guy I saw last time I saw him he had a hand down his shorts, so you we don't want to bug him now, do we? <laughs> and Pierre just shoves him over, barrels in, and is like, Cousin, it's me. I'm Pierre. I'm Pierre. And Glenn, in a really big dick move in both senses of the term, says, I've never seen this Pierre in all my life. Be gone, Pierre, who I do not know. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, I believe, when the when the kids would throw up the, uh, the, the Mariah Carey, I don't know her. Uh, yes. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. He does not know her. So Pierre wanders back off into the night, picks up Isabel and Deli, and everyone in the neighborhood has taken off their Dr. Jekyll pants, and they're in their Mr. Hyde robe, and they're acting very scary and nuts. And city people, what are you going to do? Yeah, what What are you going to do? A lady looked at Pierre, and it scared him so very much. But they stay in a hotel because Pierre seems fancy, and that. The innkeeper basically says that they have a special fancy guys pay later policy. Although initially he's like, bro, if you want to roll up here, you got to, you look like a pay in advance kind of guy because you got a lady with you. And that's kind of <laughs> And he's like, but never mind, you look fancy. <laughs> um, okay, so here is where we encounter a twist. Pierre is a writer. This ought to be good. <laughs> We get a book called, we get this <laughs> book of Pierre called Young America in Literature. Yeah. And this is the part where Melville is also kind of bitching about writing and publishing, but mostly in a cool-ish way. But in any event, Pierre has been doing fancy lad blogging, and apparently people like it. He was going to publish, but he was like, oh, what, I got to fill a whole book, you mean? An entire one? <laughs> you know, and not with little smoochy kisses, which is what he does when he trades like <laughs> romance books with <laughs> with ladies his own age. He's like, I can't write those. I'm going <laughs> to then hand it back. <laughs> this might be because I didn't I didn't read this book in the best of moods. It's, you know, the end, end of the term. I'm kind of a little cranky. And like Melville's philosophical digressions, which, Megan, you talk, you like reference this, which I generally like in Moby Dick find delightful. I found a little interminable here. And oh I sort God. of like he as he's talking about Pierre, like crafting this book, he's doing all of that. And I can't help but think this is an elaborate troll, right? Yes. Like Melville is writing the most ponderous shit. Be like, yeah, and you can imagine what this guy who's not nearly as skillful as I'm doing was, you know, and so, so I feel like Melville himself is giving us a little bit of a taste of the, the ponderous and kind of pomposity of like whatever this object is that Pierre is supposed to be at work. I on. mean, the letter he gets at the end from his publisher who has already given him an advantage. <laughs> for some reason mm -hmm. and the letter yeah. says like quote how dare you send me your poopy doo-doo on a page <laughs> yeah. in an envelope full of poopy doo-doo yeah i Terrible. hate you 
hate you. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it is a, a, like elaborate troll, but uh, and I think Melville like and like you know he makes good on it. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. Yeah. Yep. And you I get a punchline. There's there it totally there is a punchline, but the funny part is is that he thinks he's dunking on Pierre and he's actually dunking on himself. Like he's like, oh, a guy a guy like Pierre would write that, but not me. I'm writing a cool book everyone's gonna like. Everybody loves my books. Remember the last one? Yeah. yeah. Talk yeah. about manifesting it <laughs> in Melville. <laughs> the Melville image board is something yeah. we should all aspire to. Yep. When I'm 100, somebody'll find out how good I was, Mom. <laughs> hey it's true it's true but anyway yeah there's a bunch of stuff also about writing and handwriting and signatures and pierre here refuses to have a daguerreotype taken by captain kid um (laughs) (laughs) he loves portraits though and he engages in a long digression about how he's practicing his signature all types of different ways and deciding whether to put a heart over the eye in pierre all that sort of thing so Pierre, Isabel, and Deli are living in this old church, the Church of the Apostles. It's where all the cool people live. It's somewhat outside polite society. And there are rumors that they're maybe involved in some millennialist project, even though it's not a church anymore. So it's also bonkers cold in there. And Pierre's home office is two barrels. He's (laughs) a millennialist in more ways than one. (laughs) So even though Deli's like... I like it cold. I like it cold in here. (laughs) (laughs) She's the true maniac of this book. Not doing any incest and is absolutely out of her mind. That's true. For liking the cold. So we meet another person now from Pierre's past, Charlie Millthorpe. He was a farmer's son who became responsible for his pale, sad mom and pale, sad sisters after his pale, sad old dad dies. But before he got pale and sad and dead, his dad was like, son, you need to take care of the family by farming and manual labor. And Charlie's like, I shall harvest poems after my shift at the philosophy mill. (laughs) And and he sells all of their shit and moves them to the city. And he's living his dreams. And he knows the evil pamphlet guy, Plumlimon, who also lives at the church and who is called the grand master in like a kind of a creepy way not like a chess way in like a pt anderson movie kind of way <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly yeah yep um it's- thanks your tall pod the church of the apostles is so it's like it it's this weird it has a feel almost of like a 19th century sort of like utopian religious community but it's all like very heroic so we got plen lemon <laughs> right but there's also reference to like lds like they reference the book of Mormon floating around at one point mm-hmm. so i just i feel like that must be symbolizing something but what i'm not i don't know yeah, I'm excited to chat about this. But it's also low key labo m it's yeah. Yeah. It, like which to the plebs is rent yeah, yeah, very, very bohe- bohemian slash religious fanatic slash like new agey kind of yeah. self help <laughs> yeah, sort yeah. of site. Yep. Yeah. yep, there's something for everyone there. Yeah. So Charlie is a good friend to Pierre and he helps him out, even though they haven't seen each other in a long, long time. And the Church of the Apostles is not so bad. They like the quirky vibe of the polycule. <laughs> But things still aren't going super great. Pierre has a tummy ache and is cold and it's apparently hard to move to the city with three fucking people and decide you're going to be a writer. Weird. (laughs) 
um, Isabel's helping by copying papers and doing two long hugs with Pierre and strumming the guitar and saying stuff like, I love nighttime. It's my favorite time. Would you like to live in a tent made of my hair? (laughs) Smell my hair. It's not weird. (laughs) It's fine because I'm your sister and wife. So stuff goes bad again quite fast in a moment of extreme embarrassment uh never meet your heroes folks pierre encounters plum lemon and he can't find the pamphlet it's so awkward pierre's embarrassed in a very relatable way (laughs) (laughs) yeah actually usually his embarrassing shit i'm like i would i feel confident i would never do that but in this case yeah yes yeah he's like ah kant would think i'm a dunce (laughs) (laughs) stupid stupid me a lot Um, a lot more kant in this book than i expected yeah, more than you want, but less than you need. Some Goethe, <laughs> not enough. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Sad news. I got bad news for you all. Uh, brace yourselves. Mrs. Pierre, as in the mom, is dead. The lady with the fork. The lady with the fork. R.I.P. Fork lady. <laughs> you forked her last. And Dickhead Glenn inherited Saddle Meadows. So he does admit he knows Pierre now, huh? Huh. That works. And Glenn is also Mr. Steel, your rustic fiance. He's dating Lucy. Finds out in this letter. And I, so I have to say, like the Mrs. Pierre died and, and Dickhead Glenn inheriting, that does like that really interrupts uh like the kind of like the the, the patrimony, like right, the patrilineal mm-hmm. descent that it's I mean it, the estate by virtue of like kind of like the, the patriarchal like first son primogenitor shit, like what Pierre's right. I mean the, the mob like you know typically would not factor into that equation, but yet like she like the maternal kind of gets the like control over the site and then like interrupts that in some way. But again, I highly doubt the claim is that like so so primogenitor is what we need to do, right? <laughs> no, we should do all of our societies just like the czars and yeah. everything's going to be cool. I think that you are misreading the russophilia of this that's just saying marry your sister, cousin, wife, mother and do czars. <laughs> yeah, live the czar lifestyle. Yeah, it- yeah, right. It, it's just, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, there's one of my problems with interpreting this book is it's voicing a lot of anxieties in a very critical and kind of and, and deliberately kind of mocking, like satirizing sort of way. But it's it just feels more sort of amorphous, maybe. And it's in the, the, the locus of its critique than than like Moby Dick does or a lot of his other fiction. Yeah, I think that it's totally impossible to get at stuff via an incident or something. So uh, most of the good criticism that we'll talk about sort of either tries to understand the work as a total thing, like what's he doing, especially with the ending, why does it end this way? Uh, Which you don't know the ending yet unless you've read Pierre, but that's to tell (laughs) you. So here is a place where we we get some stuff Pierre's writing. It's it's sort of in the vein of the pamphlet excerpts, but not sections, but not quite. And I'm blowing past this because Lucy writes this letter and the the letter that Trist referenced, the I'm coming letter. Yeah. And she <laughs> she indeed does come. Uh who shows up at Lucy. Yeah. And yeah. 
sorry. Can I can I just read the two sentences to, so that like okay? Oh yeah. This is, oh yeah. Th- this this letter while doing this whole like oh, but Pierre, like I understand you have to be married to her in in the temporal world, and I won't ask who she is or why. But we're married by God. It's like whoa, okay. But then it just gets like breathier and breathier, and uh, like so I am coming to the Pierre like first usage right. Look for me that I am coming. I am coming, my <laughs> Pierre, for a deep deep voice assures me that all noble is thou art, Pierre. Some terrible jeopardy involves thee, which my continual presence can only drive away. I am coming. I am coming, Lucy. Um, and <laughs> what is very clearly this sort of like orgasmic outburst exists within this sort of, again, deep pathos in this like highly Melvillian at the one sense, like sex joke, but also like deep sort of like feeling and also like philosophical slash theological claims, which is just like, I don't know what the fuck he's doing, but all of that is happening there. And I can't stress enough how little you expect that Lucy's going to do this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought she was dead. essentially that's something we all said we wanted to talk about today is like the motivations of all these characters are super impenetrable but particularly like i do not get why the fuck she comes back other than hey let's try a polycule you know (laughs) a different one yeah yeah Yeah, let's let's do that what are ladies for i ask you i still don't know (laughs) um but it's a good question Lucy, so so technically they're cousins. Technically they're cousins, and she's like, "All right, we're cousins. We're just gonna tell everyone that we're cousins because technically that's true. I'm gonna live with you guys." And be, being eight years old, Pierre goes with this flawless plan. Why he didn't just say that Isabel was his cousin from the jump? I don't know. He's not good at truth or lies. No, no, no. genius, this guy. This is where Pierre starts calling Isabel his wife and the fantasy of them being a couple sort of gets realized. Like when, before Lucy arrives, he says, yeah, it's my wife, um, to <laughs> Deli. And she's like, who? Because he never calls her his wife. So to so Lucy, you'll, you'll also be surprised to find out Lucy's unpacking her easel because she does art too. Oh, no. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh-huh. And who shows up as she's preparing to make a normal living out of, you know, uh, that easel. But the Stanleys, the Stanleys are here. Glenn and his brother, other dickhead. And they try to get Lucy away from this weirdo bullshit. And that's not necessarily wrong. But Lucy, <laughs> that is both cool and deranged, says, fuck you. No, I'm going to stay. I do not consent to leaving. It is my will that I stay here. And a bunch of other – this is where it's interesting, the Church of the Apostles part too, because you see the – maybe the only good instance of community here, they all sort of help – they sort of chase them off, help Pierre. Yeah. yeah, and, and right, and yes, um, and that imp- in a way that implies a sort of like stability or kind of like mutual care in a way that obviously the uh, relations founded on kind of like family and like patrilineal descent do not. I mean, as soon as Pierre steps outside of that, it's like you are an outcast, and like even your own cousin won't recognize you. Whereas, like, yeah, they have cl- they've definitely been sort of like adopted by the the community of the apostles. And there's yep, kind absolutely. of a cool moment where Pierre is like. You're not the boss of her. She's an adult. Like, she owns herself now. Or something, like, obviously I'm paraphrasing, but yet there's this moment where where he's like, you can't tell her what to do. She's, like, yeah. 
her own person. Yeah, yeah. and she's quite forceful too. Yeah. And so this is kind of a surprise. This is a weird, surprising thing. And but Lucy, and so we get a kind of repetition of what went on with Pierre too. So Mrs. Lucy's mom also can't make her come home from the slumber party early and disowns her. Speaking of, Lucy is also great at making plans. She's in this book. Uh, <laughs> she says that she will simply paint portraits for a living. Uh, Pierre unbelievably has notes about how realistic this plan is. <laughs> All right, Pierre. Yeah. Uh, everyone's being weird as hell. Isabel is very jealous. And Pierre doesn't want her to make him money by teaching guitar also. Um, but what he's doing at the time is being cold, uh, presumably doing a shit ton of Adderall, and trying to finish his whole book. And he finishes, goes to the bar, has a vision of a Greek titan. Uh, so this goes like roughly as you would expect. <laughs> yeah. And he face plants into a gutter and rolls home. <laughs> Uh, later this fun little quadrangle of normalcy heads to the art gallery where Isabel is like that painting it's me it's my twin this is great this is weird and then they're on a ferry ride and Isabel tries to go on a swim but uh, not in a fun way yeah and and, like suddenly yeah this painting which like Pierre's like oh yeah I guess that does look kind of like my dad (laughs) but it's not and wait could Isabel have been lying about being my cousin or my my sister sister, yeah yeah, could Isabel have been lying about being my sister, which s- miraculously is something that never occurred to him previously. Like, how do <laughs> I actually trust anything about this story? Which, you know, again, this is not like a hyper-realist sort of fiction. Uh, you know, <laughs> like, it's certainly but, not that. <laughs> no. Uh-uh. But, but I think it, there is are some like sort of epistemological kind of questions happening of like, okay, like, so why was Pierre so primed to just immediately trust this i mean i think horniness is one reason but there's others <laughs> in a way that like suddenly he's like oh wait am i the dumbass and it's like well yes sir you i mean most clearly are <laughs> he has but, been reading the whole book after all Could, yeah, yeah. wait couldn't be me who is yeah, it yeah so here's the ending if you're ready for it two letters one cup uh here <laughs> oh, gets two letters the first is from his publisher and they're like no we're not printing this shit give us our advance money back you ding dong no one's gonna read this and the stanleys have also written in a rage blackout and pierre gets so mad that he becomes the rootinest tootinest shootinest pierre in the wild west <laughs> he double fists some pistols he found in his neighbor's apartment and goes hey glenn pew pew and he has to go to jail yeah yeah and glenn glenn's dead glenn's very dead now yep which is pretty funny so dead <laughs> yep um he's doing a quincy from dracula only not yeah, yeah, hot yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah he did he did step into that uh, persona but again, we've got Glenn, R.I.P. Glenn, rest in Pierre. Um, <laughs> <laughs> more good news. Lucy and Isabel can still hang out in jail with them. <laughs> they can come hang out. And TLDR, Pierre and Lucy take poison and die. Charlie Milthorpe comes in and is like, oh, Pierre, this is a bummer. And Isabel sort of pops out and is like, I'm going to die now, too. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then she, and then she does. <laughs> she 
<laughs> Isabel, Isabel has become Ralph Wiggum at the end of the book. It's like, no! I, drank, I drank poison too. <laughs> uh, yep. uh, and poor Charlie uh, now has to be Horatio and be like, oh, do I have to tell? I gotta tell everybody about this horseshit. Yeah. What yeah. if I didn't tell anyone? <laughs> what if we never told anyone about this? What if we didn't bring it up? Um, <laughs> But yeah, she dies with her hair all over her brother husband. She shall strum Hotel California at parties no more. <laughs> R.I.P. Uh, Isabel and your big hair. <laughs> it's been a been a rough night and I hate the fucking Eagles, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with the Eagles. That's a, you know. Are you? But, we are? Eh. This is the official I mean, position of the E-A-G-L-E-S podcast. E-A-G-L-E-S Eagles. I, mean, I just, I, I, I don't, I honestly don't give a shit. I just wanted to drop in a Lebowski reference. Oh. I, Katie, I have to congratulate you. Like that, that was way, um, you made it sound more normal than it is the experience of it. Yeah, I didn't. It was not a uh, faithful rendering of the experience of reading Pierre, but there was only one way to get this done. (laughs) Because it didn't include, like, it's really difficult to communicate on the page the, like, effect of a psychedelic hitting. And it's like, you get a certain way into this book and you're just like, okay, well, it's better than I not try and fight it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I just, and I have to just compare the experience because I, and I, in one sense, like, well, okay, I mean, this is its own thing. We need to evaluate it as such. But, you know, I finished Moby Dick and I'm like, damn, I don't, I don't fully have my head around any of this, but that was cool as hell. Like, what a novel. Uh, Benito Serino, it's like, oh my God, dude, like, that is the most fucking scathing thing. Like, yeah. you know, well, what? You know, this I finish and it's just, I'm like, what the fuck did I just read? I also finished it and I feel like every time I read Moby Dick, I do get a little closer. I get like more in it and I I get a little bit more bits. I'm not sure when I will read this again and if I will get more of it on the second reading or if I'm just going to be baffled forever and ever. (laughs) I think, I mean, I I don't know when I'll read it again either and I know that whenever I do, I'll be definitely as baffled if yeah. not more so it's not like benito and benito serino you read it for the second time and you're like god i'm a fucking idiot yeah 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 yeah, yeah like, right no benito you have yeah, to benito read it a second time that's like when yeah. you come to its fruition yeah this i mean and i, I hate what well, it is called or the ambiguities like i hate to do that but i mean i you know i mean part oh, of yeah. it i think is that the philosophical and political questions are much not that they're resolved in, in Moby Dick, but I mean, here it's just it's open. I mean, the, okay, like he references Cot, right? Like the idea of the aporia, like the 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 gap that can't be closed that is constitutive, but like it is a gap. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a hole and absence of some kind. That maybe that's what he's doing all over here. It's just it's like questions explode, but they just you know, there's not an effort to contain them. They just proliferate or something like that. Yeah. And I'll say there's a helpful, I don't know if, um, if I said this last time or if we talked about it at all, but the distinction I found useful is, so the reason why Moby Dick is more intelligible is because the stuff in there is symbolic. That yeah. it's mm-hmm. a, it mm-hmm. is a symbol. In Pierre, it is not. It is an ambiguity. And so you can learn more about what a, how a symbol is functioning. But once you learn how an ambiguity operates, then you just have to live in it. Like you just yeah. have to marinate in it. 
And it, yeah. it, it's even okay in Moby Dick that the symbols are proliferative, right? So it's like yeah. you can get all these symbols that are like, oh, is the whale like the phallus or the nation or Jesus? Or And it's like, it can be all of those. You know, it's like the symbols are can be multiplied and it just gets better for having that multiplicity. But here, it, like, it, it's just in collapse. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and, and I think too, that... I mean, as like as well as always, generally. But I think you know, particularly with with Melville, the, you know, the stuff I find well, some of the stuff I find most fascinating are questions of like, of of the 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 sort of the nation, right? And and I do think that you know, like that that whole that whole thing at the end where uh, which we didn't really get to, but there's a uh, you know, oh, there like the, it, it references that there's this there's this mountain that has that uh, like spurns that like you know that's close to to Saddle Meadows that spurns this whole uh, discussion of like the Titans and and this kind of like classical past, which like, I mean, the novel actually says directly, it's like, oh yeah, Americans are super into this shit because there is for like white, white settler culture, there is no deep history and uh, oh yeah, but like, it's stupid that we want to do this. Right. But I mean, but, and yet like the symbol and the sort of fixation still stays around or something like that. No, Melville's just doing anti uh, identity politics crap. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Not really. And yet, like, and yet these sort of symbols and illusions continue to reappear, even if part of what he's saying is, but there's no content in this context. Right. There's no content in this context, I think, in part because Pierre is so empty. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He only stands for Pierre. He's like the millionth Pierre of Pierre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And these women don't, they, they do stand for things like sister or cousin or ruralness or feralness, but, so unstable. but sto- yeah. so unstable. And so like, not in a way that has any sort of richness, like ruralness doesn't teach us. She stands in for that, but that's not even a thing. That's not even a developed idea. No. And even these categories that we would use to understand things like sister and wife and stuff, <laughs> yeah. all get totally mixed up. And even technically, the Isabel's being in the family. She is in the family. Right. And so is Lucy. Right. Like, she really is. So I don't know what to do with any of it, but it's a cool book. Well, tell us about the context, just so we can have it to struggle with further. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. So now that we've read the whole thing, I wanted to return to an overview, a kind of overview of the critical conversation around Pierre and this is all after the 19th century when everybody went, boo, hiss, get back in the ocean. <laughs> uh, Joel Fister, who is really great on middle class psychology in 19th century America and also like writes really beautifully, uh, said basically that the Norton makes Pierre teachable. And I tend to agree. What he says about Melville it, that you can understand from Pierre is, um, is, quote, how America and its more subtle forms of ideological and emotional reproduction tick in his era and ours. So again, I know that's very broad, but there are a lot of different strains we can wrap around here, like different strands of your sister's hair winding together into an incest <laughs> wig. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fister also really likes the John Demos essay, uh, Oedipus in America, which is the hothouse family essay, which is basically about how uh, everyone in American novels is a beautiful flower that wanted to fuck its sister and mom. (laughs) Okay. So again, I'm going to run through some of the Norton stuff because it is super useful, or I found it super useful in at least kind of understanding where one might go with Pierre. So most of this criticism follows 
uh, Sakben Berkovich's essay about how to read Pierre. And he says, among a bunch of other things, that it's a radical, a tragic comedy of downward mobility. It's like this riches to rags thing. And he also suggests we read it biographically, which, yeah, I think you can. There's a lot going on there. So Melville was raised in this super Calvinist tradition. So I think that does inform a lot of what he's doing. And I think it's why he was drawn to Hawthorne and also why he sort of resisted doing the stuff that Hawthorne wanted him to do. That kind of drawing on that in the way that he did in Moby Dick that he doesn't really do here. So the one critical strand we could talk about is the property. So there's a uh, Jeffrey Clymer has a cool essay that is talking about property relations and paired with the history of subjectivity production. And he's saying Pierre is basically a novel about legal fiction, so ownership and property relations, and these being predicated on dispossession. And part of what he's doing is talking about these legal fictions in relation to the kind of legal fictions of the family at an outward angle. And what he's saying is a kind of like very Joel Fister thing. Fister is like all about from the inside out and Clymer's kind of outside in. I don't know. But he is, he's arguing Pierre's a materialist critique basically uh, about how capitalism shapes emotional life. He also says that it, it presents market relations as a horror wreaked principally on the self, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, relatedly, there's a fair bit of Pierre criticism about the land. So there's this essay sa- by Samuel Otter that talks about the renters, the renter wars tenants revolt. And that's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It was this revolt in New York City, uh, or New York City. <laughs> what am I, a real housewife? Um, <laughs> so it was in the it was in the eighteen late eighteen thirties and um up to 1845 and basically what happened was uh then Rensselaer the third died and he would basically let people just kind of like rack up debt but there were there was like funky stuff in the contracts that made people accrue more debt than they could ever pay off and then his when he died his shithead relatives were like hey we want all this money and the people living on the land were like we did what what do you what do you want man <laughs> what do you think we think we're yeah like what do you want to do so they just sort of said fuck the rent and uh good for those guys yeah that's great yeah rock on yep they're cool um they tarred and feathered people (laughs) that's a great great american tradition there it really is so bonkers it's much more violent than people think the tarring and feathering is oh yeah Yeah, no i mean it's terribly burned yeah, yeah, no, I mean it. It it, it can, I, yes, it can be. It can be very murderous and torturously. So, yeah, b- b- very. Uh, there's a ho- good Hawthorne story about that. Anyway, of course there is. <laughs> <laughs> That's my boy. Okay. So then we have the portraits criticism, right? And that's the uh, James Creech article and Pierre not being like, don't take, don't take my picture. I'm too pretty for you to take my picture. And the idea is basically that Pierre is in love with the painting of his dad and this is latent and that what Pierre is doing, the novel Pierre, is parodying this like latency as truth thing Mm -hmm. so much. And that thing got commodified basically for industrial capitalism and I'm quoting there, that increasingly routinized workers who needed compensatory latent secrecies of the soul, Mm. which, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that and actually that 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 bears a lot of similarities to like Deidre Lynch's sort of um, claims about what happens to the novel um, earlier in the 19th century. That sort of like it, uh, you know, that it becomes a, a a space of like finding sort of like non uh, non monetary value, right? Um, and and that and and so that's that's interesting, right? That like sort of the the idea of the kind of like the mystery or the sort of inter- interpretive secret as a as an antidote to that kind of like sort of a of capitalism yeah it's it's a really it's it's cool and there's a lot you can do with it and it's a it's a well there's also a lot you can do with it like you know that of course the which lynch does the novelistic character thing yeah like that as value yeah which i think pierre does take up a little bit in a bunch of ways but i mean uh, i'm last- only a tiny bit like this may not be his point at all but i'm just gonna like weigh in my like I'm skeptical that the photograph is always going to be like the mark of capital, industrial capital's hegemony or whatever. But like Melville's certainly producing a version of the camera that's like, no, you're going to you're going to make me look too real or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That it doesn't have like, oh, the hidden things or whatever. And it's like, maybe you don't. (sighs) That's just not a good way of talking about photography. Go read Edgar Allan Poe. He liked them. (laughs) (laughs) he liked a lot of stuff yeah you know what he didn't like good everything he liked wasn't good but he did like photography (laughs) he did like that and And so did Stephen crane and he's my boy yeah yeah Yeah, Stephen crane that boat sure was open okay so the final thing is this question that is the big question that i think most critics have at some point if you're going to talk about pierre you sort of have to ask this which is Okay, so what the hell is with Melville saying everyone was going to love this because it was a big bowl of wholesome milk that we could have a sibling wet t-shirt contest with? (laughs) He doesn't do any of the sentimental stuff. He's all knowing thunder. And there's an essay by Wynne Kelly. who It's about House of Seven Gables, too. But the question there is, if uh, Melville self-consciously drew from the anti-patriarchal domestic novel to expose a middle-class ideology – why did he destroy his own vehicle at the same time? <laughs> he certainly drove his car into the sentimental yeah. novel. Yeah, yes, and they sure both did. caught fire. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> yeah. He was doing donuts and then just boop. Yeah. And there's a bunch of other criticism too, right? That calls it self-destructive. And there's a Cindy Weinstein essay that basically says that this is this is self-destructive Melville. This is Melville. He has not been doing self-care. He <laughs> well, no. is <laughs> it, 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 he's just he's having a bad one. And that he that by rejecting even this weird fake idea of domesticity where your sister's your wife, he can't even have that. That won't even work. The boundaries, there can't be any boundaries nothing can work um because he's trying to say he's trying to do a i don't know he's trying to understand something about the social world and you sort of can't fit in that vision into a into this neat happy ending or family box or whatever and i buy that i mean it's it's really like helps actually helps me in a way to think about like you know the sentimental novel is like designed to provoke a lot of reflection or feeling or any of those things and you're supposed to feel sad and with this book i mostly felt confused and that provoking that's not a feeling or an affect like confused is just 
like <laughs> wrestling, like sifting through shit in like a state of of just like, huh? Like that's and actually interesting. It is. And and sort of in typically Melville fashion, it's also like deeply comic all the time mm-hmm. as well, right? So stuff that he takes obviously takes very seriously, he also thinks is hilarious, even to the point of being just flat out risible. Um <laughs> it, it, like Katie, I actually wanted to take you back to something you said and you, that you sort of returned to at the end of the context there about like you know melville's own biography and i know like the you know oh the biographical fallacy well guess what new critics you're all dead so you can't come at me for this Um, but but, i mean no that makes sense like i mean his melville's like grandparents or grandfathers were were much like pierre like revolutionary war heroes right like Mm and he told us like last episode he you know his dad was really rich but then kind of like lost it all so like I, I mean, yeah. I, you, you could definitely read this as this sense like fucking like patrimony and like the past. It's like it's all bullshit. And yet much like Hawthorne, who also thought it was bullshit, but he's like deeply fascinated by it and can't. Yes. So we can't like cut the tie from it. Yeah. But we also like feel not only its oppressive weight, but the ridiculousness of it, which I think yeah. like would point to the incest plot. It gets like that gets so heavy because it it is just this like kind of navel gazing, infinitely self-reflexive thing that we know is like kind of a, a dead end in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And yet- we're just like, you know, the novel is just like fascinated by it and can't, as I was saying, quite cut the tie, even though it knows how fraught and absurd it is. And it has to yes. make its characters into tiny baby children who can't function logically, right? Like they can't logic their way out of the plot that they found themselves in because they're like right. completely nothing flat. Where are all these women coming from? Like, where yeah. are they there? Like, what? Are they there? They're not even, he has sex feelings about Isabel, but not really about the other two or three, well, his mom, but like, (laughs) they're not developed. They're just like the part of the porn before the porn starts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Everyone's favorite part. (laughs) It's the best part. So it just like, again, this is the thing where it's Melville in a weird way at his best, which is like, where you see a form that you recognize and then you're like, but all of its other things are not doing the thing that they're supposed to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's like he he drove his, he drove a book into the novel and they all caught fire. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> the part of Billy Madison where the O'Doyle car drives off the cliff, right? <laughs> O'Doyle rules. Crash. Oh, oh Lord. Poor, poor Pierre. <laughs> Um, can we? So let's talk about this. It's a ch- the church question mark of the apostles. That's yeah. also the Lower East Side in 1959. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Or like the you know those those weird um, g- utopian cults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It definitely is that. So the part that's it m- possibly most interesting to me about this about this spot comes at the beginning and it relates to exactly what you're saying, which is this idea of utopian community possibly. But the rumor is that they are involved in some kind of millennialist project. So meaning that millennialism posits that you can have, that you'll have paradise on earth, like after the apocalypse, that there will be a time on earth of peace and harmony, right? So I wonder 
I think there are like, – I haven't figured this out, to just to be totally clear. And I just wonder what we can do with that because as I very briefly mentioned and Tristan touched upon with Melville's family history, he has this strain of Calvinism in him and he is really attracted to the work of the work and person of Hawthorne. And so I think these two – I don't know, these the the main idea in the Calvinism, right, is that everything is preordained and that you don't I mean, I know there are that we can do the Calvinism another time. I'll always want to do it. But that everything is sort of preordained and that everything unfolds according to a plan that's, that's already been set. And this seems to seems to not be that, but it also is because Pierre is the you think there's a version of this, I guess. I don't know where <laughs> where Pierre can live in this community. Uh, it's a functional community. Yeah, like there there might be a good end to this thing. Yeah, um, I do want him to have his nutty incest polycule, and for yeah. them all yeah. to be happy together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let yeah, Isabel yeah. play the guitar like a goddamn weirdo, and they yeah. can just <laughs> grift money from somewhere. Yeah. Yes. Well, and the Calvin, like, so, yeah, and I think much, much like Hawthorne, right, that he, you know, there's a, there's like a Calvinist logic, but that is, is no longer committed to, ultra committed to the um, doctrinal theological questions, right? Like, I mean, I don't, I don't say like yeah. the Puritan God here, but I do see a, like the inescapability of like kind of historical forces and um, sort of the randomness yeah. that we, you know, I mean, we can have whatever intentions we want, but there's a, you know, there, there's just, there, there are these bigger forces around us. Um, and like, yeah, I mean, Pierre, like his, his, this family history that has this, this like, crushing weight over his his soul like kind of uh patrimony and sort of like familial ties right um and, and i would say like the thing with isabel that's weird is that like even though his like i'm gonna marry her uh it that it that is the disaster that gets him disinherited you could also read it as that like a deep commitment to like questions of the family and sort of like mm-hmm. patrilineal descent mm-hmm. like that he okay so my father did this thing and i have to make up for it uh because like I, you know it, we're still always By doing the, the same ass thing yeah exactly exactly but um, it's also like straight up sophocles right it's just it's just yeah. like it's it's saying like jokey jokey greek tragedy jokey jokey but it runs exactly the same way yeah 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 yeah. you know it's yeah, just like and- we know where we're gonna end when we open and that's the part that i really think is so so Calvinist about it is that there's the utter inability, no matter what you do, no matter how much action you take, no matter how many risks, no matter if you do the wildest thing you can think of and tell your mom to go fuck herself and move to the city and do whatever, you still wind up dead with a brown haired lady who (laughs) plays guitar. Yeah. With no eyeballs. yeah (laughs) you just come to this tragic end nothing you do in the world and pierre didn't pierre left nothing in the world he left nothing he left no mark no nothing yeah and and i think i think this also ties to the writing questions we had too right i i mentioned before we started i felt like there was some anxiety of influence stuff happening with the uh you know that that weird thing where suddenly we're doing this titan myth in the berkshires and it's called the, the second's called Enceladus, right and it's you know the novel's like that well this is i mean the novel's telling you this is fucking stupid fixation right and yet we're doing it again right so it's yeah. like mm-hmm. yes this the greek myth of the american context is wildly out of place and 
it was already such a weird, incestuous bit to begin with. And yet we're doing it again, even though we don't want to. We're still there. We, there we there's no outside of it. And, and also like the portrait that reappears, right? It's mm-hmm. like, oh, wait, this yep. portrait. Like the connection that like uh, my dad, the, that my dad looks like this lady is what like, you know, convinced me that this story was true. And now there's this other portrait that appears seemingly purely by chance, but has like completely upended everything he's been thinking about uh, his own self justifications. And he ha- like, it comes from like the, uh, the outside and there's like no explanation that he can offer for it. You know? No. So again, just like contingencies all over the place, but all, but like deeply structuring deter- and determining contingencies that I agree. Agree. I mean, that's you can see the Calvinist notion of the universe, even absent the kind of Calvinist God. And we're all totally. just like struggling mightily at like, how is it possible for me? And I'm I'm a different kind of reader of the novel just periodically, but like the novel's supposed to have characters. This is really causing me problems that I'm like, no, everything is <laughs> yeah. like they're totally the the motivation is completely determinate and coming from outside. And so yeah. Like, you know, we know that Melville's like, it's a novel, sort of. Yep. Well, that yeah, that's the thing. Like, is I think Isabel says, uh, I think my dad was the painting oh, or God. something yeah. at one point. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. Like the like the literally like the painting was my dad. And, yeah. And that's how the characters are. They do have paintings for dads. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. Like they they are they are something on a surface, and it's it it's really cool and gorgeous, but it is really there's nothing there and the back of it is yucky but not in an interesting way just in a yucky way yeah (laughs) for sure so let's do a game let's do a game okay so a game about pierre you say that's hard (laughs) (laughs) and i um i tried a bunch of things different things out I was going to do this game about fonts and i had a lot of fun reading about fonts because the descriptions of fonts are utterly unhinged shout out to the font joker man um i i read an article that said discovering font personality five font psychology insights that will improve your ux design nice Uh, yeah so i've learned a lot i'm not moving away from garamond it's that's what that's what i do (laughs) yeah 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 did you know that serif fonts are as traditional as bourbon whiskey they're predictable elegant and rational Oh, it's I always think that whiskey is rational. But do you think they're the manifestation of class and heritage? Mm. My goodness, Uh, I won't go. I won't go into the fonts. I could. We'll be here for days. Well, I mean, it sounds like low key eugenics, but okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just doing. Yeah, short versus tall fonts. (laughs) (laughs) No kidding. No kidding. Heritage fonts. Heritage. Yeah. But what we're what we're gonna do today is just, we're just talking about hair. That's right, it's hair. Uh, th- I'm just gonna ask you a couple quick questions about hair. It's important to the novel. It's one of the last things that appears. Yeah. So. Yes. Yep. Back to back to the hair lady at the at the very end. That's right. Yeah. Back back to the hair lady. So I just want to say when I was googling about hair, some one of the questions that came up, like the frequently googled, were: Does human hair contain gold? Does human hair have life? Have life. Well, it certainly does in this book because you can sniff it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just uh, gold and have life. I mean, is it, pro- it probably has every heavy metal in it that you've ever that's probably ingested. True. And yeah. You, you probably have it a does. few atoms of gold in your body somewhere. Yeah. No, it, do- it does actually, funnily <laughs> yeah. enough. Yeah. Yeah. 
You're totally, you're totally right. Okay, so part of this is I wanted to ask you guys about the the facts themselves. So on one website, I or two websites actually, the fact the only thing that can't be identified by hair is gender. The only thing that can't be identified by hair is gender. The literal only thing. What are yeah. the other things? Exactly. Like. Okay, so it can tell you about it can tell exactly as it can tell you about heavy metals. It can tell you about I guess it can tell you about your health. It can tell you about age, but it can't tell me what I had for breakfast. Is no. my hair psychic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think it, it can tell me what my white blood cell count is. And you, I'm no. sorry, you say to the and gender sex assigned at birth, right? Yeah, sex assigned at birth. Yeah. Yeah. So. What they what that's what they mean. Okay, they mean sex assigned at birth. Okay, they and correct, that's because hair doesn't actually have DNA in it, right? It's the fall or the, the the root does, but they can't or does hair have? I mean, there are there chromosomes. True crime tells me that you have to have the bulb, which is like has okay. the skin scoop yeah, on it yeah. that has the DNA in it. It's all dead otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't think we're gonna figure that one out. But okay, so uh. Which of the following do you think – which of the following emotional states do you think makes your hair grow faster? <laughs> Anger, sadness, loneliness, or horniness? Horniness for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Horniness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would think the sadness and loneliness would shut down the hair growth. Although, I mean, you're at the hermit, but they're not – I mean, they're not so lonely as just like recluse, right? So – Yeah. Yeah. No. The horn- yeah. I mean, the the, the, the glow, right? That, 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 right. That's, uh, <laughs> the hormone It's always in every fucking – Yeah. Every, hor- uh, every, uh, every hair commercial. Yeah. yeah I, I'd say, yeah, hor- horniness makes your hair grow fastest. Yeah. That's, you're correct. It It, it is. It's horniness, folks. It's, we're not. We're not doing. I've had enough of mysteries after Pierre. <laughs> I mean, shit. You're, yeah. <laughs> you're, 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 you're uh, uh, our grandparents' generation. It made you know if you if you masturbate, you grow hair on your palms, right? Oh, right. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so. Right. So we know the horniness is directly yeah. correlated yeah. to hair growth. Yeah. Okay. Also, has anyone ever met anyone with hair on their palms? You know that's fake, <laughs> right? True. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I have to ask you something. What do you think the wet stretch test is? Wrong answers only. <laughs> it's when you get your hair, a strand of hair wet, and then stretch it out to see how, when it breaks. Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, okay. I, I, but, I, bro- but wrong answers only. Wrong <laughs> oh, answers. Oh, shit, only. sorry. <laughs> uh, I, yeah. Um, a wet stretch test. <laughs> so you take, you, it, it's very important to determine the tensile strength of spaghetti. So you take a dry <laughs> noodle and, and then a wet noodle and see how, how, how much, um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I just think you take your kid out of the bath and put one hand on their ankles and one hand on their neck and just see how far you can stretch your kid. You get a deep sea diver and a crowbar. <laughs> yeah, well, um, congrats. Um, and this is just we're just having we're just having an interesting moment of interest. Okay, so it, people's hair grows, you know, and. So just just let's just let's just guess together. Um, if you counted all of the growth of all of the hairs on a regular person's head, so so anyone in Pierre, like <laughs> totally regular. So like Isabel, we'll we'll say Isabel. If you counted the growth of all of her hair, how many miles do you think it would be? Oh, in a year, how many miles does your hair grow? 
Well, it grows about six inches a year. And so if it's how many hairs, individual hairs, that I have no fucking idea. It would circle the earth five times. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to go with Tristan's answer. It's going to circle the earth five times. It would circle 10 miles of the earth one time. <laughs> I wasn't. Okay. That, that wasn't that far off. No, 10,000 no. miles or 10 miles. Or- yeah, tw- yeah tw- 200 and some thousand miles versus 10. It's, yeah, I mean, we're yeah. still talking miles. Yeah, no, chronometricals or illogicals. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Okay, here's the last here's the last hair fact. It's the bottom of the barrel. I'm at the bottom of the barrel that Pierre's using as a desk. Um okay, each strand of your hair can support up to 100. We're, are we gonna take the SAT support up to 100, 100 grams in weight. Mm-hmm. If you multiply that by the hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand strands on on your head, how many elephants? Could your entire head of hair support? Three. A hundred thousand elephants. I, I just go as grand as grandiose as possible. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're both um equally right. It's two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, I, I was only one elephant off. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot of elephant. It's true. It's like a large number of elephants when you take <laughs> elephants into account. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, well, this has been Better Than Dead. You can find me on Twitter at Tussersaurus. You can find Tristan on Twitter at TJ Schweiger. You can find Katie on Twitter at Katie Crywo. You can find the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Better Ed Pod and email us at betteredpodcast at gmail.com. But only if you want a full episode of chronometrics talk from (laughs) Kristen. I will not be listening, but I will be recording my own podcast on 19th century clothing construction and how you can lose a whole pamphlet in your coat. I'll be in the bathroom. (laughs) Katie will be in the bathroom blowing bubbles in the tub. Um, Our intro music is Let Bronstein by the Redskins and used with their permission. Our logo was created by Jane Bonsack of JB Design and Content. Please rate and review and subscribe. Next up, we have the talented Mr. Ripley with Devin Daniels of You're Tall But I'm Standing in Front of You. And then we'll return in January with Inkle and Yariko and Mrs. Dalloway and various and sundry texts. Thanks, comrades. (laughs) 